This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is an extensive read, but one that is filled with uh, wonderful advice, and it's written by Doug Zahn, who's earned a Ph.D. in statistics from Harvard, and he's a, a, a former professor at Florida State University Department of Statistics, a very complex area from my perspective, and joining me from Florida is the author, Doug Zahn. Welcome, sir. Well, hello, Jay. Good to be here. Pleasure to talk with you. You have named your book Stumbling Blocks to Stepping Stones, which is a very catchy title, uh, subtitled A Guide to Successful Meetings and Working Relationships. Now, as a statistician, uh, an area that I am not very gifted in, um, when it comes to detail and statistics, I get lost in the weeds. How did you uh, avoid that in writing this book? I avoided that by not writing about numbers. Good. Uh, it's the part of statistics that fascinates me is the relational part, the interpersonal part, where the statistician and the statistical consultant or collaborator get together and do some work. And it's about how to make that interaction work more successfully. You have uh, you have been a statistician all of your adult life. You have uh, certainly been fascinated by the subject material and the area. Uh, how were you able to separate the, um, I, I think, the details of numbers and all of that and, and actually uh, make it interpersonal? Well, it is interpersonal. There's no getting around it. You have two people talking to each other where things get a bit, crazy is if the statistician thinks that the client should be in a different place than they are, studying a different problem or going at it in a different way, or the client thinks that, oh my, I've got the wrong statistician, or oh my, all the horror stories I've heard about talking to statisticians are correct. Hmm. So there are these, there's a lot of history that is going against any statistician who goes into either a classroom or a consulting session or a collaboration session. Uh, you've managed 354 pages, which would not be difficult for a professor that uh, deals with this content. But how long did it take to complete, sir? Well, it's somewhere in the vicinity of 10 to 13 years. Wow. And was that uh, something that you had thought of 13 years ago and decided, I need to share this in written form, and uh, th then you began to take uh, extensive notes or, or begin working on the project? How, how did that get started? Well, it got started by the fact that my partners and I were giving a six-day consultancy skills course at the Office for National Statistics in London. Hmm. And we did this six-day course two days a week over 
spread over three months. We did this about 17 times. And after many of the courses, participants said to me, Doug, this is great material, but I would really like a written version of it. Do you have that? And I'd say, well, no, or not yet, or I'm thinking about it. And finally, I said, it's time to do this. And when I retired from Florida State, I poured myself into this project. There was a lot of content, a lot of ideas, and it took a long time to distill them. And I wasn't doing this full time, but I was definitely intrigued at how to communicate this material to other people in a book form, not in a face-to-face workshop. Mm. And that's a whole different uh, delivery form. It, it absolutely is. You, ha- you you mentioned in your book three core processes, power, rapid, and learn. And also, there are three basic questions. Share with my listeners, what are those three basic questions that uh, need to be addressed? Share with me so I can be sure that I'm on the same page you are. <laughs> well, I, I'm just uh, reading the the introduction to the to your book. It talks about three basic questions, and I, I was curious whether those were integral to to a good communication and and how those are important in the outline of your book. Uh, do you remember well, how you approached that? Yeah, I. This is one of my basic ways of organizing this material. Um, first question was or is. What is my primary job? And everybody's job ultimately comes down to having effective interactions with their coworkers Mm. on whatever subject, topic, discipline they're in. If your interactions aren't effective, nothing gets done. So what gets in the way of having effective interactions is you make a mistake. So my second question is, what if I make a mistake? Well, we all do. Really, The question really is not, what if I make a mistake? It's, what do I do if I make a mistake? Mm -hmm. What do I do when I make a mistake? And how do I recover? And that's the second part of the book. And how can I Improve is the third part of the book, and this is a discussion of setting up role plays, setting up videos, and taping a role play or an actual consultation, and using this as data, that statistician word does get in here, Uh and it is so much better data than we have if we just have the memory of the interaction. If we've got the video, we can go back to the places where it got rocky, and we can avoid the he said, she said debates in terms of, no, I didn't say that. And I know that when I've looked at videos of mine, son of a gun, I did say that. Mm. And then there was something to work with rather than argue about. Describe for me your your key reader. When you were writing this book, you had a, an obvious uh, target audience in in mind. Uh, would this, if, from my perspective, would this be business ownership? Uh, would it also just be maybe the employee as well? Or could this spill out into the general public, do you think? I think it can spill out into the general public very naturally because everybody makes mistakes. 
every well first of all everybody has meetings and they're either effective or ineffective so the topic number one is how do you have an effective meeting and that's the whole uh, about first half of the book the power process then topic number two is this one we were just talking about what if i make a mistake well you've got to recover from it and that's not a natural thing for people to do because very often when people make mistakes, their focus is on, uh, wasn't me, it's not my fault, and covering it up or blaming it on somebody. Those strategies produce no progress forward. Uh, so it's it critical to learn how to get out of your own way, to learn what your early warning signs are that, you know, there's an emotional storm building and to nip that in the bud or as close as you can to the bud and get out of that cloud and then move toward learning how to avoid situations like that in the future. And that's where my strong recommendation is to, to use video. And everybody's got video in their hands right now with, with smartphones. And you get great audio, great video, and all you need is a partner who's willing to do the experiment with you to see how things went off the rails and how you can make them better the next time. So that's sort of like the Barney Fife uh, conflict resolution approach. Uh, nip it in the bud. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, you have uh, you know, one of the key phrases from uh, uh, the movie, uh, from the uh, series that uh, has been probably the, uh, the standout, nip it in the bud. Now, you have, uh, again, over 354 pages in that, besides the, I guess, the clinical approach to uh, conflict resolution and, and uh, improving uh, work environment and, and other things and other topics that you address, uh, do you include uh, stories or anecdotes, or are there ones that will stand out to the reader? Uh, the book is built around one story. My main anecdote involves an interaction I had with a young woman some time ago, first interaction with her. Now, I'm leading, <laughs> leaping into a description of this, mm. um, not wanting to read your mind. Is this a, a useful place for us to go? Absolutely, yes. I, I was just curious whether it would be uh, deemed conversational when someone begins to read your book. Or are they going to really have to have a, a brilliant mind to understand the concepts? No, this is not written for nuclear physicists. This is written with no 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 formulas, no statistics. Um, it's got some ideas in it that come out of statistics in terms of being aware that there's variation. Some of your interactions go well, some of them don't, and be, being interested in what are the differences between the two. Now, the one that I was beginning to tell you about is described in detail at the beginning of the book. It's an interaction that I had with a young client that I have called Brenda. And she came to my office. She wanted to talk about a project for a course that she was doing. She 
filled out our new client information form. This was a Friday, and her appointment, I think, was the next Tuesday. Over the weekend, I studied her form carefully. This was probably only the second or third consultation that I had been videotaped as a consultant in. So I really wanted to knock this out of the park, wanted to do a good job. And she was a a first-year student in nutrition, basic questions. I studied it over the weekend, and the the biggest question I had was, all right, how do I describe how to design this experiment, because it seemed to me like it was an experiment, to someone who doesn't know anything about statistics? She said she hadn't taken any courses. So I worked hard to try to come up with a basic plan for this. Then on Tuesday, the appointment time came. Um, I was in the video room. She wasn't. I finally tracked her down in my office, breakdown in communication between my secretary and myself as to where I, new secretary, where I would meet my clients. I was pretty well steamed up because I'd spent so much time working for this and here this client wasn't there and how could the client do this? And then I found out that the client was working on the best information she had. It was my misinformation or lack of information to the secretary that created this breakdown. Hmm. Finally, I settled down And we started the session, and I asked her, you know, what she wanted to get out of this session. And she said, well, I've been looking at the problem I want to do, and there's just not enough students in the area to do that. So I've changed my problem from that, and I've got a whole new idea to do how to do it now. At that point, I quietly but in my brain went ballistic because I'd spent the weekend Mm -hmm. preparing for this gal's problem and here she knocked it out of the water in the first sentence that she said. And it took me a while. I I never did really very recover from that very well. But we we talked about her second problem and we sort of got through it, although as I listened to the tape and I listened to the talking with her about the first problem, second problem, it seemed to me I was trying to steer her back to the first problem. Mm. You know, this is what I've prepared for. This is what I want to talk about. Never mind that you've changed your mind. And it was just um, humiliating, for lack of a better word. I had been consulting for some 10 years by then, maybe 15. And here I was off on my own tangent, telling my own story, trying to direct things in the way I wanted them to go. Um, No nod even toward being client-centered. So the session ended not particularly well. (laughs) It ended because there was a knock at the door, and the next guy who was going to be using the consulting room said, I'm doing here now. And I looked at my watch and oh my gosh, I had run over. Mm. So it was just a a nightmare in many ways. But 
was a nightmare that I blamed on her because she changed her mind. She was in the wrong place. Her problem related to a topic that had been discussed maybe 150 times before, and she did not have a statistics course in her curriculum. So all of this happened, and all of this was piling up in my brain. So I slid back in my chair and sat up in my chair and looked her in the eye and said, so I noticed that you haven't taken a statistics course yet. Or is this something that you are planning to do in the next year? And she looked me right back in the eye and said, no. Now, I don't think I had ever been in that situation before in my career. <laughs> uh, someone much younger, much more, less experienced looked me right in the eye and said, no, I'm not going to take your advice. And I didn't deal with that really well. And in fact, I was upset at her for quite some time, talked to my colleagues about, isn't this a terrible client? Have you ever had a client like this? Lots and lots of clients have had, or lots and lots of statisticians and professionals in other areas had clients that they put into this category. But then I made a presentation at a conference about statistical consulting. And one of the respected professional consultants who was there said to me after my talk, Doug, I'm a little bit puzzled as to why you were so thrown off base by this client. I have clients like this all the time. Mm -hmm. I find it a challenge. I love to work with them. I love to see how I can lead them to something that's useful. And this was a bucket of cold water and ice water, actually, <laughs> in the face. I mean, it was, about a, it was about a year after the session. Right. And I said, well, that's a very different way of looking at this. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that the approach that he used and the mindset, the attitudes that he had toward clients like this were attitudes that I wanted to have. I did not want to be self-centered rather than client-centered. Mm. I wanted to be serving my clients rather than hammering them into the shape that they should be in so that they would match my definition of a good client. It, it took quite a while to make that shift because this was really a very fundamental shift in how I did my practice. I mean, it's quick to say it was a shift from being self-centered to being client-centered. That's but it involved taking some hard looks, long hard looks in the mirror. Yeah, that's that's and, a uh, that can be a miracle process. Uh, what you've just described is something that everyone can relate to. I think uh, you know, with family relationships and so on, uh, especially as a parent or grandparent, you think you uh, you have learned everything and you know everything, or at least you feel you have uh, a good advice to share. And uh, right. when it's not received, it it is an insult to you. You think. Uh, but what you've described is really the best approach. What's best for the client or for the person I'm dealing with? Right, but it took me about a year and a half before I turned the corner on that case and saw what you just said, that yes. a far more effective approach here is to be client-centered rather than self-centered. 
and sometimes yeah the, and sometimes the client or the recipient uh, is going to uh, actually succeed more effectively or more efficiently by discovering it on their own i i, I knew an individual who was a, in leadership and the he was a genius at getting other people to think it was their idea even though it was his and he planted the seed maybe months ago and was able through patience to wait for them to make that decision and 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 decide this is their idea and boy isn't it great yeah now, that's a great a patience that he had was Absolutely. something that I did not have mm. at that point in my career, apparently. Um, not apparently. Clearly, I didn't. Absolutely. I don't think many of us do. Uh, you, you have done a fabulous job in outlining this. Uh, again, once someone reads through your book and uh, studies it or uh, engages in the conversations that are inside, they can go back and, and use it as a reference point or uh, refresh their memory at the highlights and maybe make some notes as they go that will help them in their relationships. And uh, whether it's business or whether it's interpersonal of any kind, the title yes. of your book, again, is a great title, Stumbling Blocks to Stepping Stones. I love that. A Guide Good. to Successful Meetings and Working Relationships. Doug, my listeners need to get a copy of this and those in leadership. How do they get a copy of it? Well, it is most easily available on Amazon. And their local bookseller as well, if they look under uh, Doug Zahn, Z-A-H-N, and do a search there. Are there other books in the the works, or how are you doing with with your writing process at this point? At this point, I'm recovering from this book, which (laughs) took me about 15 years to finish. And I'm looking at what to do and where to go next. Well, thank you and, for yes. I'm sorry. Thank thank you for sharing your insight and your history uh, in the process of sharing the details in this book. Again, it's um, although you're a clinic. Uh, clinician in some respects. The book is conversational and certainly uh, filled with wisdom in dealing with our friends, our neighbors, uh, the people we work with. It has some wonderful outlined uh, ideas and concepts. Thank you for sharing that with us today. You're welcome. The title again is Stumbling Blocks to Stepping Stones, a guide to successful meetings and working relationships. My author, Doug Zahn, Z-A-H-N. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on getting your book published. The effort you put into your work is truly commendable. But what's next? What will happen to all the knowledge you have worked so hard to acquire to produce your book? Here at TogiNet Radio, we can provide you a platform to keep your knowledge working for you through the power of podcasts. The subjects our podcasts cover are as varied as the grains of sand on a beach. From life coaching, to military resources, to business success, even to the paranormal. We have a place for everyone. To get started on your next step, call Scott at 903-787-5880 or email him at scott at toginetradio.com that's s-c-o-t-t at t-o-g-i-n-e-t r-a-d-i-o dot com Welcome back to iUniverse Radio 
Greetings from our universe. This is J. Douglas Barker. The title is intriguing. American Bloodline, the rightful heir, reclaims Europe. That's a fascinating idea. Joining me from California is the author, Bob Ninabar. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. It's great to be here, Jay. Thank you for having me. Uh, interesting idea. The um, The book almost looks as though it might have some basis in fact. I don't know that that's the case. You talk about the tribe of Benjamin and some other intriguing ideas. Uh, share with my listeners a little of the background of this, which is a fictional story, but uh, what else is in there? Well, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the facts around the history are all in there. They're all real. Uh, what is fictional is the character Charlie, who acts as the narrator and kind of brings life to the historical events and the family relations that he has uh, throughout history. You started on this journey because of uh, checking into your own family history, if I uh, if I get the story correctly. Well, actually, uh, no. I was I was uh, encouraged by several genealogy groups to actually uh, look at my history. They had found a lot of connections uh, through through my bloodlines, my uh, ancestral track, and uh, so they had encouraged me for about three years to. Uh, to do something with it, and they had taken a lot of very interesting facts that were really unknown to me. We had a lot of characteristics in our family, uh, the way people acted, the way uh, people's personalities were, but I never really put two and two together until I started reading all the information that I started receiving from some of these groups. And so about uh, two years ago, I started writing on the book just to kind of put it into order uh, for myself and my family. And then, of course, the deeper you you uh, dive into some of the historical facts, uh, and the more um, pronounced things become, you really start to you know question everything that you've learned and and start to look at a just a real deeper dive in history altogether. Uh, you mentioned history. Is that something that you've always had a passion for, or is writing and being an author something that you've always had a passion for? You know, uh, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say I had a passion for any of them. I I enjoy history. It's not something that uh, you know I dive into every day. Uh, I enjoy writing. I wake up every morning uh, from as long back as I can remember at three in the morning, and so from three in the morning till about six in the morning, um, you know, I write. I make notes. I read. I read about eighty books a year. Wow. Uh, so I keep pretty active in that in that spare time. And, um, you know, just everything kind of culminates together until all of a sudden there's something there. Uh, you mentioned this is uh, about a two-year project, or was it a little longer than that, getting the facts together and uh, putting it in a, a form that you felt was was worth re- releasing to the public? You know, I had I had been given uh, quite a bit of the factual history that, that exists around my family over the years. And uh, so at the end of the day, that information was was very easy, very pronounced. Uh, I had some interesting things happen in my lifetime as a result of my family history or what I believe uh, came about from that, and that's where uh, the whole advent of, of putting Charlie in as a character to make it a fun read or an exciting read came together. And, um, you know, and I think that's where uh, the book has been compared to Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code and, mm. and Ken Follett's books, and so I think that's where a lot of uh, that comes into spirit or into play is because when people read it, um, you know, when you have weird things uh, in a family lineage or weird things that, that happen over many generations, uh, some of the family members lose connection uh, until it's brought together in a book and, and tells a story altogether. And so um, really 
what this is is just a culmination of all those facts that I'd been given, all the events that had happened uh, to myself and my family as a result of the relationships that we have with, with family and lineage. And um, it just turned into an interesting story, and, and here we are today. Well, this is general fiction, but you're telling me it's a blend of fact and fiction that uh, that brings this story to life. Right. The uh, uh, Correct. Yeah, we, we filed it under historical fiction uh, just because of, of uh, Charlie's uh, character that's in there. Um, you know, whenever you're telling a story, uh, not everything's going to be in fact when you have a, uh, uh, a character that's animated that's, uh, you know, taking you through time and putting some fun and storylines together with it. But from the historical point of view, um, you know, there's there's part of our family that has a relationship with Poseidon, for example. Hmm. I, I don't I don't believe in Poseidon. Uh, you know, I believe that was a mythical character. But from a historical standpoint, he's tied into the Merovingian lineage, which is part of our lineage. And, um, you know, I would say that's fiction. Some people may may think otherwise. But at the end of the day, it's really about bringing that character into the story to understand uh, how it's been brought into the family lineage and 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 what that's uh, created over time. Uh, your first chapter, the Lost Tribe of Benjamin. Now that uh, is referencing a uh, tribe uh, from the uh, from Israel that uh, goes back actually thousands, hundreds of years, and maybe even thousands of years. Why does that fit into the story? Well, it's really the uh, the opening. Uh, feature of the story because when you when you uh, look at genealogy, most genealogy from families uh, these days can be traced back to uh, around the 15 or 1400s. There's a lot of good records that are kept, a lot of records uh, that um, are kept in in old church uh, books, those types of things. So from a genealogist uh, looking back in the time, it's easy to go back. But when you get back to uh, different periods that go way back to, say, uh, you know, the time of, of uh, the Benjamins, you can't track it by name, hmm. but you can track it by personality. And so, and what I mean by that is, is uh, when you look at historical events, you'll notice that in a lot of um, areas where the family didn't matter as much as maybe it, it, it was pronounced in the Jewish communities, where, you know, women, men, children, uh, we're all in high regard, but a lot of a lot of the uh, uh, different tribal groups that existed, say in northern uh, Europe, did not operate that way. And so, what you find throughout history is is you go back to burial sites where the family members were buried together. That's usually a, a sign that uh, you're you're in the um, Jewish or, or Benjamin type of of uh, personality. And so, uh, you you'll start looking at the characteristics that changed. Uh, in areas or regions of the world, and you'll notice that uh, the Jewish area that was covered was primarily in the Middle East, and all of a sudden the personality started changing in the direct areas that the that the Jews would have, um, uh, you know, meandered over over several centuries as they were uh, developing down through uh, northern Germany, um, down into France and the southern France, Norman, uh, northern. Uh, Spain and all these different areas, you see the personality change. You also see the belief in the uh, mono god instead of dual gods, as as that uh, uh, tribe kind of transcended into uh, modern day Western Europe. And um, and so that's what they measure when they're looking at at artifacts and looking at historical events. Once you get about to the 13, 1400s, it starts to be recorded better, and so then you get a much more pronounced factual history on this stuff. 
What's interesting, though, is when you have um, uh, very pronounced um, heritage or, or uh, uh, genealogy of, uh, say, a royal family, now all of a sudden that stuff is kept at a much higher uh, recorded level than, than, say, an average family's background would be kept in. And so it's much easier to uh, really go back and to trace and to see what's going on. And, um, you know, it just, it, it just is a matter of how they kept facts throughout history that you can pronounce what's going on. And so the Lost Tribe of Benjamin, when you read the book, you'll notice that uh, their personality became the Merovingians. And their personality with the Merovingians then becomes captured in written history. Uh, it goes down through time until, uh, um, you know, until they go over to uh, uh, the genealogy, then goes over to uh, England from France eventually, or Normandy, uh, goes into England, and then eventually goes into a lot of historical events that really shaped and created uh, the United States, uh, all the way from the Magna Carta uh, becoming uh, kind of the um, the precept to the Mayflower Accord, which uh, became part of the uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony document, which eventually became the uh, uh, basis for the U.S. Constitution. So there's a lot of uh, historical connection that comes out of the book, um, and it, it does it in an orderly fashion so that uh, people can really think and, and learn how things came about. And And so when you're when you're looking at the historical events and then you look at the people that were involved with this, that's where my family lineage comes in and, and plays a big part because of our direct relationships that we've had over, over the centuries with these people. Well, that's fascinating background uh, the story that you have shared with us. Now, the story itself, uh, would you say the bulk of it takes place in present day or is it historical in its uh, setting? Well, uh, Charlie takes place in present day. So he is, as a narrator, takes him from uh, adolescence all the way up up through adulthood. Some of the challenges that he faces because of his family background, um, you know, why a lot of the uh, uh, international communities wanted him to act really as a spy on on their side because uh, a lot of the traits that came out of the family uh, lineage that that exist over time that you can read about, you know, whether you're reading about the Merovingians or uh, you're reading about um, Charlemagne or if you're reading about any of the folks in today's modern age, uh, Charlie has the ability to see auras in people. Uh, he has web feet for uh, uh, that serve him at different times in his life for things that happen in the water. Uh, he's able to read people very quickly um, and to do situations that, that really make him an interesting uh, subject for somebody like, say, the CIA or, or some of the governmental groups where they're trying to get into certain situations. Uh, his abilities become very powerful and very helpful, but they also become very dangerous to him because a lot of the governments look at him also as a threat. And so, uh, you know, if he's not going to be on their side, they don't want him on any sides. And so he has to deal with that through the book. Uh, but all of that is tied into characteristics uh, that existed from his forefathers, from his background um, of people in his genealogy groups uh, all the way up until, uh, you know, today's environment. And it's really helped reshaped, uh, reshape uh, his history or his, his being. But also uh, it explains how a lot of historical things happened over the, in, in past centuries uh, from people that shared the same capabilities or abilities. Explain to my listeners, uh, from your perspective, how they should approach this. Is this an action-adventure? Is it a historical novel based on fact? Uh, is it character-driven? How would you describe it? 
You know, I think it's a fun look at history. Uh, history oftentimes can be very dry. And, and when you asked me earlier if I'm a, uh, you know, a, a person that really dives into history, one of the complaints I've always had about reading a lot of books about history is it can become very dry. There's a bunch of dates, a bunch of names. You get lost in all the facts. And what this book does is it takes a modern-day character uh, that has these certain capabilities and, and powers, if you will, uh, and then goes back into his time. And, and when you go back into his genealogy, uh, the way it, it really um, kind of traversed in through all of the different time periods that were significant, all the way from the Benjamins, through the Crusades, um, through the wars in England, through uh, uh, you know our wars in the United States when we were forming our country, uh, it utilizes those historical points, but it brings it out in a fun, action-filled story so that you still get all of the historical um, desires that you're looking for or information that you're looking for answered, but at the same time, uh, it's a story where you really can enjoy it. Uh, you don't have to remember a bunch of names and all that kind of stuff. You remember the events, which are more prevalent in people's minds anyways. And so uh, you can tie everything together, have a fun read with it. Um, and, and you know, from the folks that, that uh, have talked to me, that have read the book, uh, I've done a lot of book signings around the world. And, and so what's happening is people are really, really enjoying the story from an action standpoint, but they're enjoying the fact that they get a lot of the historical things that they've always thought about uh, or didn't know you know, really how the connections work. Now it's all in a really easy to read book where everybody can walk away with a lot of information. It's put in order. Uh, it ties it to modern day things and events, and it's just a fun book. Bob, you've done a wonderful job on this, and I must, I must say I commend you on your abilities to, uh, to read, remember, and share the information that you do uh, absorb through readings and uh, and also through study. The book uh, title again is American Bloodline. Um, w- is there anything that's a surprise to you or a moral that came to the top of the surface as you began to look back at the the contents of your book? You know, just like anybody uh, reading or learning about their family history that, you know, I've read a lot about history. I've never read about my my family origins or anything like that. Hmm. And uh, one of the things that that's made it a lot of fun and I encourage everybody to do that is is dig into your family history, because at the end of the day, uh, you will be surprised. There are there are some folks, uh, uh, you know, we had family members uh, that I mentioned that uh, William the Conqueror, the Merovingians, um, Charlemagne, all these people were, were folks that were in the direct family lineage. Uh, King Rollo from the Vikings was in there. We had some Roman characters that are that were uh, uh, very announced in the lineage. And you start looking at things, and then you read about their uh, personalities in life. And then you, hmm. you can kind of compare it with your own personality and realize where a lot of your um, personality or your personal traits come from these types of things. And so uh, when you have a chance to tie everything together, uh, you know, I should just think, well, we, you know, I've got thousands of years of old guys that lived and died, nothing happened. Right. But you'd be surprised on how much they're involved. We had one of the kids that was involved with throwing the tea off of the uh, off of the ships during the um, uh, uh, fight with, you know, one of the original Tea Party fights. Really? Uh, we had folks that worked with Washington. So th- your hit- history is rich, and it's not just mine. It's I think most people have a very rich history if they look at it. Uh, we had 300 monarchs in our family lineage were related to the Plantagenets, the folks that are still running England. And I just had an opportunity. I was in southern France, 
and we stayed at a, um, uh, a little place called Floor, which was owned by uh, uh, Raymond V and Constance, who was one of my relatives. And when we walked in, we actually got had an opportunity to stay in the actual uh, castle that they owned over a thousand years ago, sleep in the rooms they slept in, uh, experience what they experienced. And so, uh, you know, from that standpoint, it's, it's absolutely um, a lot of fun, very entertaining to, uh, to know your history, to dive into your history, and just, just really uh, feel through things. Well, that's fascinating. Bob, is this the first novel you've released, or are there others in your, in your history? No, I wrote, uh, I've written three books. Uh, the the uh, last one I wrote was a book called Blur, and it was just a fun book. Uh, I have this book, and then uh, I have two sequels that I'm doing with this book. We're about 80% done with the second uh, book that's coming out. But um, uh, again, you know, it's it, it, to me it's just, it, it, it's not a, uh, a labor to write a book when you just have some time and write your notes down and put your thoughts down. Um, you know, I encourage everybody to do that, and it's easy to write a book these days. Uh, it's sometimes hard to get it out in the public because, uh, you know, a lot of times they, they don't do anything, and sometimes they take off like this one's uh, had had uh, calls to do movies and, and all that that we're working through, and so it's Fabulous. been very exciting from that standpoint. Um, the uh, We have uh, uh, several um, interviews coming up with NBC and some other studio folks, so it's you know, it's a lot of fun, but first thing you got to do is just write down your notes. Don't worry about putting them in order. Uh, you can organize it later, but just put all your notes down. All of a sudden, uh, you know, you'll have 85,000 words and enough for a book. Put it together, organize it, put it on the shelf and see how you do. But it's uh, it's just a lot of fun. The whole process has been very uh, interesting. It's become a second job to me. It's way outside of my uh my normal life, but uh, but it's been very entertaining, and uh, the people that we've worked with and, and met over our travels have been absolutely fantastic. Uh, Bob, thank you for that background uh, story. That is fascinating just in its own right. Now, the title of this one, again, is American Bloodline, The Rightful Heir Reclaims Europe. My guest author, Bob Nienaber. Where, sir, do we get copies of your book? Uh, you can get it anywhere. It's, uh, I, I know it's uh, sold in 160 countries, um, multiple languages. You can get it on Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble. They've got it on uh, bookshelves. Um, you know, so you can you can pick it up anywhere. Fantastic. They can do a search under your name and let me spell the last name. It's the first name is Bob B O B, Nienaber, which is N I E N A B E R. If you do a search under that, you'll find this and other novels and works that Bob has completed. Bob, uh, congratulations on what you've achieved so far, and we look forward to visiting with you in the future. I know this is going to be a runaway for you. Thank you again. Thank you, Jay. I appreciate that. My pleasure. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.